staffing issues and may not communicate correctly, those code words will help with that. We talked about how to get in a good fight with communication and laying down your pride, hearing the other person. We talked about where's your heart in this. It's a major factor in communication. If your heart is towards love, towards the other person, then that'll help a lot. And then we talked about spirit-led communication, which also links to that. So tonight we're going to talk about the art of discipline. I think art is not really the first word that comes to mind when people think of discipline. I'm sure there are several others that came to your mind when you thought of discipline. But uh, what is discipline? Well, Matthew 28:19 says, "Go and make disciples of all nations." There's a root word there, disciples discipline. In the dictionary, a disciple is a follower or student of a teacher, leader, or philosopher. If a disciple is a student, then the discipler is a teacher. So, Matthew 28, 19 could read, go and make students of all nations. So, discipline is actually teaching, not punishment. Good com the Great Commission says, go and make students, not slaves. Tonight we're going to cover three main areas. The last one, if we don't have time, I put all the notes in your handouts for you to uh, read over at home. There is a lot of material on this. We're not going to go fast. We're going to go at the speed of the Spirit, all right? But if we run out of time, there's, you can take your notes home. Okay. Three areas, what is discipline? Number two, punishment versus abuse. And three, launching versus leaving. All right. What do these images have in common? I have a shepherd. I have a steering wheel, a coach and an archer. Does anybody have any thoughts on this? What do they all have in common? What? Direction. Right. They're all teachers in a form. The shepherd steers his sheep with a staff and protects with his rod. Protects with his rod. He doesn't beat the sheep. This guy right here, I think he's from East Texas or maybe a little further east. Um, he is a shepherd, and if you can see in his hand, he has about a three to four inch stick. All right? I'm going to just read this off of the, uh, the uh, information that we got. A rod is a, uh, in biblical times was a two to four foot club used for defending the sheep from predators or robbers. It was worn in the belt and may resemble a walking stick, but was a weapon or a tool to provide safety for the flock. The staff was used to hold the sheep during shearing and for the gentle correction or redirection. Gentle correction or redirection. Sheep are not to be beaten. 
they are to be directed. The hook at the top of the staff was to fit around the neck or head of the sheep to reroute them. This is interesting. At the bottom of the staff was a spoon-shaped shovel. If the sheep wandered a bit from the herd, the shepherd would scoop up a bit of mud or dirt and flick it at the sheep that had drifted to catch its attention. How many sheep have drifted? And they just need something thrown at them, if you will, to get their attention to come back to the flock. Again, they weren't beaten. They were just reminded, you're off track. Too many times us Christians like to beat up people that drift away. You know what I'm saying? Too many times our kids may drift away and we just lay into them. That's not how it's intended. We're just to re-remind them the safety of the flock is over here. Amen. All right. Safety and herds. The next one is a steering wheel. Okay, you learn to drive in a parking lot with wide boundaries. Discipleship with your children is like steering a steering wheel on a car. Right? It's small adjustments. It is teaching the student or the child how to drive their life. Right? It is, again, teaching or steering the child. Number two, how do we learn to drive? I taught my kids in a parking lot. Where were the boundaries of that parking lot? Really far away. Nothing in there. We first learned to go slow, feel the brake, feel the gas. If there was a mistake, there wasn't much to run into out there, right? That's where we made our mistakes. But as we got better, we went onto some side streets. We only went 30 miles an hour, and that felt like 150 to them at the time, and they were all tense and stuff. There were boundaries there that were a little bit closer, but we were going so slow that you could touch the brakes and come to a stop. Right? Apply this to teaching your children. Here is our rules. Here are the boundaries. And as they're drifting around, you re-remind them the boundaries get tighter and tighter. As you give them more responsibility, 30 miles an hour, 40 miles an hour, those boundaries come a little bit closer until you get out onto the highway and you're going 60, 70, 75 miles an hour with cars and trucks right beside you. You couldn't get there without starting in a parking lot. This applies to our kids, too. If you're expecting highway driving from them and they're just in a parking lot, you need to tap your own brakes and say, where are they in this learning process of driving? Number four, we tighten the boundaries as you get better at driving. A coach, again, is another model of discipline or discipling or teaching. A good coach, and not all coaches are good, all right. Show the team what he wants done. This is how you hold the ball. This is how you line up. This is how the play works. And we do a walkthrough. We go through it slowly with your kids. Kids, do you understand the rule that I'm talking about? No? Show me again. This is what I'm looking for. Patience. Then 
Number two, the coach walks with them through the play many times with lots of mercy for your kids. I know you didn't, may have not understood what I'm looking for. This is how the dishes are done. This is how your room is to be cleaned. You be patient and merciful with them. Okay, number three, a coach will give correction while the, other, while the athletes are learning the drill. All right? Guys, our kids are learning how to deal with life. All right? They are not going to be perfect, and you aren't either. You need to have mercy as you are teaching or guiding them down this path. Number four, the coach sends the team into a game to get experience. Guess what rookies are going to do? They're going to make mistakes. And a coach brings them back and takes that rod and beats them over the head with it, right? Wrong. You say, you should have done it this way. Remember how we went over it in practice. Hold the ball this way and don't fumble or whatever. Your kids are going to make mistakes. You gently correct them back. I have not said uh, punishment yet. This is all teaching and guiding. It is discipline. Discipline is teaching, and they're the student. Number five, after the game, there may be more correction. I heard one of the Super Bowl players say, the coach doesn't tell us what to do anymore. He makes sure our heart and our mind are in the right place. We already know what to do. There'll come a time in your kid's life where they'll know what to do. They just need encouragement in their heart and in their mind. Amen? And then the archer. In our book, and at the, the, the last part of this has to do with archers, right? Psalms 127, 4 and 5. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man who has his quiver full of them. Make sure your arrows, which are your kids, are formed straight. This takes time and patience. Two, arrow tips need to be hardened and sharp. A crooked arrow may fly all over the place and not hit its target. Whose responsibility is it to have a straight and sharp arrow? The archer, not the arrow. It is your responsibility. Four, a sharp, straight arrow is formed by heat and pressure and training. Just because it's hot and you have to re-remind them 17 times, you are sharpening that arrow so that one day when you launch it, it's going to hit its mark with effectiveness. Amen? Amen. All right, so we're going to talk about some of the tools that we've used to help our children learn the art of discipline. Um, one of the things that we used was responsibility age. We didn't always raise our kids according to four-year-olds do this and six-year-olds do that. We raised them based on how they were acting. Okay, so we had told them from a young age, just because you turn 16 does not mean you are going to get a driver's license. We think you're going to kill somebody, we will not let you on the road. Amen. Not going to happen. The same thing happened as they were growing up with all those milestones of kids of this age should get to do that. So we based it on responsibility. So if they're acting like a five-year-old, 
then we treated them like a five-year-old. And occasionally they would do something, throw a fit about something, have a bad attitude, and we'd say, um, what age are you acting right now? And they'd sheepishly think for a minute and go, about two or three, and say, what do two and three-year-olds do? Well, they don't get to go over and sit by their friends at church. They have to lay down for naps. They have an early bedtime. And okay, so if you're going to act like a two or three-year-old, this Sunday you get to sit by us in church. You get to go lay down for a rest. And you get to go to bed at 8 o'clock tonight. And no cell phones. Yeah, no cell phones. Two-year-olds don't have cell phones. And that kind of hit home. But at the same token, if they were acting older, we would let them have more privileges. There were times on a weekend or a Friday night when our 10 or 11 or 12-year-old got to stay up pretty late because they were acting very mature. There was no school the next day, and it was kind of a reward for acting very mature that day. So we kind of went by their responsibility age. So just because a child is a certain biological age does not mean that they are ready for the privileges of that age. Privileges are responsibility-based, not age-based. So the lack of privileges can do a lot of teaching. Change the thinking. What's another name for that? Starts with R. Repent. Change the thinking to change the behavior. Uh, when Jessica was about three years old, it was a nice spring day. We were out in the front yard. Claire and Jessica and I, and she was playing with some of her to toys and a ball, and a ball went out into the street. And guess what a three-year-old's going to do when a ball goes out in the street? He's going to chase after it, all right? We yelled and screamed, and she was after that ball, and Claire was running after her. Visions of certain death grabbed her right before she got to the street, and both Claire and Jessica were screaming, Claire out of fear and anguish, and Jessica because she couldn't get her ball. Her thinking was on the ball and not the safety. We could have said, don't go out in the street, don't go out in the street, go out in the street, but sure, her thinking was on that toy, right? A couple of days later, I was driving home, um, and there was a squirrel that had been hit in the road. And I thought, this is a good opportunity to change her thinking. She had a very kind heart, especially towards animals. And, yeah, our screen came off. Um, so I decided to take her for a little walk. I made sure I was between her and the road. And we came upon this squirrel that had met its demise. And I said, ooh, Jessica, that squirrel, what's wrong with that? Does it have an owie? And sure enough, she looked over there, and right at that time, a car came right by. And I said, Jessica, do you think that car hurt that squirrel and gave it the owie? Of course, Jessica was all sad, and it hit her like a ton of bricks. If I get out in the road, that might happen to me. I used that 
to change her thinking. So do you think she had any more problems with her behavior in this? No, because her thinking had been changed. Amen? I think we're still... Do you guys have a screen behind me? Because we don't have one in front. So I don't know where we're at. Okay. What do we got there? All right, number one, you can change the behavior by change their thinking. As a, dis- a discipler of others, if their behavior is wrong, look at how they are thinking. That's where the ship is turned. Not by convincing them that their behavior is wrong, but that their thinking is wrong. Amen? So I'm going to have to just believe you that we're right here. Okay. And number two, change the thoughts that lead to the bad behavior. So Claire's going to do right away, all the way in a cheerful way. All right. So when the kids were pretty young, uh, we had some friends and they had a lot of kids. I think she had number six on the way and they were of various ages, a little bit like the Orozco's, you know, stair step down. And we were over at their house and I didn't know them very well. Um, but we were over visiting them and um, I didn't, you know, I, I had a moment that kind of changed my whole thinking about what you can expect from kids. She had her little boy and he was over playing with toys and he was about two, very young, you know, I think he was the youngest at the time. And he had his toys all over the floor and mom said, go pick up your toys. And I don't even remember what his name was. I, I, I think it was David, but I'm not sure. That just sticks in my head. But she said, go clean up the toys. And like a two-year-old, he kind of threw a little fit about it, and he really didn't want to clean up the toys. And um, I was kind of surprised because she said, you need to obey right away, all the way, and in a cheerful way. And so she picked him up, set him on the counter, told him this, and he was, you know, tears streaming down the face, very unhappy. And she looked him right in the face and she said, you need to fix your face and go clean up your toys. Put a smile on your face. And I thought, are you crazy? He's two and you're telling him, stop crying, put a smile on his face and clean up the toys? No way is this going to happen. But to my amazement, he did it. He dried up the tears instantly. He pasted a smile on his face and he went over and he picked up his toys. I was shocked. I could not believe a two-year-old could be expected to not only obey right away, but with a smile when they obviously did not want to. That comes up to expectations that they obviously had in their house that I didn't know could happen. So when we went home, I had a talk with the kids and we put a new expectation into place. I made a little poster because they weren't reading yet and the poster said right away and it had a little clock on it and it said all the way and we had a little guy stick guy running and there was a finish line and then in a cheerful way with a smiley face next to it and so we had a new expectation 
Now, we talked about how this is real obedience from the heart. How do we want our kids to obey God? Right away, all the way, and in a cheerful way. And we taught them that this was practice for when they would hear from God for themselves. How do we want to? He has our best interests in mind. That's how we want to obey him. So disciples need to know what you're expecting. We obey right away, all the way, and in a cheerful way. So immediately, completely, and with a good attitude. It's possible. I saw a two-year-old do it. Don't you hate it when these lessons for children are staring us right in the face? I mean, God will tell me something to do, and I, he's like, he expects me to have a good attitude about it, too. These are good for us, too, right, guys? All right. She'll put that one on me, too. Are you doing it in a cheerful way, James? Yes. There is no fair. Jonathan, like many two-year-olds, thought every toy in the world belonged to him. He didn't like to share. If a kid brought a new toy in, he would want to go and wrestle it away from him. And as we insisted that you give the toy back, he would say, it's not fair. It's not fair. This concept of fairness, in my opinion, is based on the sin of envy. What you have, I want. And I want yours. Fairness is not love. As many of you may know, I'm a disabled person. I know it's a shock. But get over it. And I've been disabled since two years old. Just this body, but not my spirit, right? Right? I think that amen volume is a little low, guys, back there. Can you crank up the amen? Let me try it again. Amen? amen. There it is. Thanks, guys, in the sound booth. <clears throat> it's not fair. They didn't say amen to me. I was never raised... My, in, in, my, in my parents' wisdom, they never raised me as a disabled person. All right? Because you're, you're disabled first where? In your mind. All right? And they never convinced me I was disabled. I had to take out the trash. I had to mow the lawn on crutches. I had to do everything my sister did. Is that fair? No. But is life fair? Absolutely not. They set me up for success in the real world because life is not fair, all right? Stuff happens that are bad to both good and bad people, amen? All right? My parents taught me that it may be difficult, but I need to find a way and I will not quit. And as my children grew up and they started saying it's not fair, I said, well, if it was fair, everybody would be bald-headed in a wheelchair and have hair growing out their ears, right? Ha, ha, ha. That would be fair. No, that is, that's just my situation. You guys have other situations, right? God made us as individuals and not all the same. He treats us with love and not fairness. Did you hear that? Let that soak in just a minute. If he treated with fairness, where would we all be? 
right? Not that good. The whole concept of Christ coming to die on the cross is not fair. It's not fair that Jesus came and died on the cross, all right? But it's love. Christ loved us so much that he paid the price for our sins. Now, how is that fair? God is not fair, but he is just. And that's how we raise our kids, from love and what is right and what is wrong, not fairness. All right? There was never, um, we were never meant to be the same as everyone else. God made us different, and that includes our kids. I love each one of my kids individually, and I treat them individually because they're individuals. They're not a flock of sheep or a herd of goats or whatever, all right? They're individuals. I love them the way they need to be loved. I don't love Jonathan the way Jordan receives love. And I don't punish Jonathan like Jordan needs to be punished. I deal with them individually as I am shepherding them through this life. Amen? Yeah. If we were to be fair, all right, if I were to be fair, I'd only give one kind of love to each of them equally. And I pushed the wrong button. Let's go back to this. Number one, fairness is based on the sin of envy. Two, God is not fair. He is just. Thank you, Jesus, right? And number three, set your mind on loving those that you're discipling or your kids. Set your mind on what is just, what is right, what is wrong, with lots of mercy and lots of kindness, but not fairness. No, that would be me. Dramatic pause. You guys like that? Dun, dun, dun. You can choose your attitude. Um, one morning I woke up, it was about 5.45. I just had a cranky attitude going into the kitchen to get my coffee. And Claire asked me in a very sweet voice, did you wake up grumpy this morning? I said, no, he woke himself up. <laughs> the common misconception is that your circumstances dictate your attitude. If you're tired, if you're busy, if you're hungry, then you have the right to be grumpy and mean and whatever. Do you guys believe that's true? Absolutely not. Nor do we accept that in our family with our kids. If they're having a rough time, if they woke up on the wrong side of the bed, they are not allowed to have an attitude based off of their circumstances. We have a saying in our family, you get to choose your attitude. Our attitude is our choice. If we want to be all cranky and stuff, it's our choice. There's a lot of people in a lot worse circumstances than we are, all right? And some of them have chosen to have a good attitude. After I poured my coffee and my wife reminded me, well, it's my choice, I decided to go back into my room and take off this grumpy attitude and put on a correct and pleasing attitude, all right? It's your choice. It may take a couple of minutes. You go into your bathroom or whatever and say, I am choosing not to be grumpy. I will 
put on a smile. I will choose a good attitude. And you know what? After you choose that attitude, then the feelings come of a good attitude. You have to have that faith, I will have a good attitude and walk in it before the actual feelings of I have a good attitude happen. All right? Amen? All right. Number one, the choice comes first and then the feeling. And number two, it just takes a couple of minutes, but it will change your whole day. Mm, I think we got these out of order, so we will push more buttons. There we go. <laughs> All right, so uh, in our house, pity parties are not welcome. This kind of started out with one of our children that seemed to have kind of the same struggles over and over again. And we would, as good parents do, come back and correct the behavior and this particular child seemed to like trying to have pity parties on me. I'll never change. I'm always going to be this way. Why can't I ever do it right? Ever heard that from anybody in your life? The defeated? I can't. No way. Well, when a child focuses on what they can or cannot do, it's actually prideful behavior. It's thinking it's up to me to change my behavior, and it's me, me, me based. This is a pity party mentality. Poor me, I'll never change. I can never do it right. Now, who should our focus be on? Do we have somebody that can help us change our heart? That can help us do the right thing? Whenever we're focused on us, you know what? They're probably right. You can't change your behavior if you leave it up to yourself. If you rely on yourself, you probably make the same mistakes over and over again. But thank goodness there's somebody that can help us if we'll choose to focus on him instead of ourselves and rely on him. He can help. How often do we tell God we can't do something? Yeah, I went there again. It's not just about them. Again, it's us. Do we model, I can't do this, I'm not able? Or do we tell God, okay, God, I can't do this by myself, but if you'll help me, I can. So the cure for a child who is overly critical of themselves is to teach them who they are in Christ. Let them listen to the Spirit. Rely on Him. Teach them that skill. Teach yourself that skill Oops. if you don't already have it. Then teach them that skill. <laughs> Sorry. So he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. It's true. If you believe it and you rely on it and you work on it. Right? So pride says it's all up to me to change my behavior. Pride in our hearts tells God we can't do something. I think he knows what we can and can't do. He wouldn't ask us to do it if we couldn't do it really. 
So teach your child who they are in Christ to get rid of those pity parties. Anybody can name somebody in Scripture that had a pity party with God by a burning bush? And anybody? Job? Yeah. Job was a big one. God's heard it. If he called you to it, he thinks you can do it with his help. Amen. I think this year of 2016, God's going to be calling us to do bigger things than we're comfortable with. And we're going to go, hey, I'm not, I'm not talented enough, or I don't have enough money, or boy, that would really stretch me. Guess what? Welcome to the club. That's how God does things. Because he doesn't want us to stay in first grade. It's like, it's time to move on, guys. It's time to get from junior varsity up to the varsity team. And this right here, guys, we're moving forward. We're moving up to varsity team. There's a little side that's not in your notes. I've got to look up here. The wise investor. If you could go back 20 years to... What's 20 years ago? 1996. Right? And you could get in your little time machine, go back 20 years, what would you invest in? Apple, Google. Look at, the, uh, look at how the city has grown around here. Would you maybe have bought some property in a particular area? Right? 20 years ago, and you remember that, 1996? What would you have invested in? All right? Now this little you know, fantasy game we play here. But my encouragement to us is look 20 years from now and what are we investing in in our kids? What am I putting into my kids that I'm going to get a return on 20, 30, 40 years from now in my kids, in my grandkids, in my great-grandkids? I want to see one, one of my days. I don't know. Okay. Uh, I want to have a generational legacy with the time I'm investing in my kids. That four or five generations from now, they'll say, oh, remember old Grandpa James? Remember what he used to say? That's the kind of investment that I'm looking for. What can you guys invest in your kids at this time? Amen. Invest in your kids while they are still young and more impressionable. Imagine an ocean liner going across the ocean. When is the best time to make an adjustment? Early on, right? Because if you have a slight two degree off course, it's going to take you hours if not days to get back on right course. Now is the time, whether they are two months old, two years old, or even 20 years old, Make an adjustment in their life as an investment. Now, do investments cost you something? Yeah. What is it going to cost? I need a little feedback here. Time and patience. If you put time, what are you going to have to lay down that you're spending time on now? All right? Claire and I, we actually lost a lot of money because one of us, we decided one of us would stay home until they were five, six, or seven years old. That means it's only one income. Five or six years of only one income is costly. 
but now look at my investment. What do you think of my investment now, guys? What do you think my grandkids are going to look like? Because I spent money and time. I researched how to be a good parent. I sought the Lord. It was costly, but it's worth the investment. What are you going to have to give up? Is it worth it? Don't look back in 20 years from now and say, man, I wish I would have invested in my kids. Amen? Be investors in setting the clear path for your kids' success. Number two, set up a generational legacy that time well, uh, with time well spent with your kids. And number three, look at this, professional investors work on their portfolio early to increase their opportunity for success. Amen? That was good. I enjoyed that one. Right, the next section, how would you feel if someone did that to you? Some people call it the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The art of selfishness has been refined throughout human nature in the course of history and especially in our culture where we are an instant society and why shouldn't I have everything I want now? Selfishness is like looking through binoculars at a mirror that's in front of you. All you can see is you, and you look bigger than you really are. When our kids did selfish acts, we would ask them to take off their binoculars and look at the other person. We changed their focus. We used their imagination and pretended that they were the other person. How would they feel? What does that look like? I asked them, how would they feel? And they would usually respond, hmm, not so good, or mad. You know, they, they got it. They knew how to do that. But the question is key, and you need to wait on them until they fully think about it and let them communicate what that other child would experience. And sometimes they might be very hesitant and as they're younger, they might really need to think about it a bit, but they are capable of doing it generally. And it's really important. And this is based on the truth in the Bible, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But selfishness is generally reactionary and instant. You know, you see something, you want it, you go. And that's an immaturity that can be taught uh, they can be taught to back up, take a moment, and think about it before they instantly jump to that conclusion. Okay, so it takes practice and thought. And the younger they are, the more practice and thought it takes. But if you, again, invest in them when they are young, when they're older, it's a lot easier, and it pays off. And a lot of times we can just look at them and say, where's your heart? or how would they feel, and they're pretty quick to correct their behavior once they've been taught. So, thinking of others does take practice and thought, but it can be done. Okay. All right, that wraps up our first part of discipleship. Remember, we're teachers. 
All right? We're not slave drivers. We're not there to beat them. We're to guide them. All right? Now we're going to get into punishment. Punishment versus abuse. I put up five little pictures here. Two of them, in my opinion, are abuse. Two of them are forms of punishment. Got the little guy in the corner looking sad. Got the guy that's way too happy in jail. Got the kid getting a spanking. And got the kid getting his ear pulled. What do you guys think is punishment? And what is abuse? And look at the faces to, to, to hear this, to see this. Any, anybody want to be bold enough? Right. Because, look at the face of the dad. Is there anger on his face when he's spanking? Right. That is our big kill switch. If you're emotional, stop. And wait until you're not emotional before punishment is executed. And then the one there on the bottom with the ear. All right. There's no, there's no cause for that. That is not punishment. That is a parent's emotion getting the best of him and causing some instant pain on a child. All right? There is no punishment unless you first have disciplined or taught. Imagine your coach going out there and just kicking you in the butt for no reason. I've had coaches do that. Come out and just cuss me up one side and down the other, and I have no idea what I've done. He has not taught me. He's just embarrassed me. Do you think I'm going to change my behavior? I don't know what to change. How many have ever been there? Yep. I have too. And I have asked my kids for forgiveness, and I have taken my mistakes and put it in, into this right here. So hopefully we can pass on some good things here. Thoroughly teaching includes a warning of punishment. All right? For instance, with Jonathan, when he was younger, he's not this way anymore. He had a thing with lying. We came up with the thing, if you lie, you will get a swap. There is the punishment. How unemotional is that? There's the fact. A swap will happen if you lie. So when a lie came... Very unemotionally, go to our room, boom. Do you know why you're getting the SWAT? I lied. SWAT, do you understand why you got the SWAT? I lied. The discipling came around the punishment. It is surrounded by that punishment. Very unemotional. The child's own actions should lead to a well-defined punishment. Open that up the, the punishment doesn't follow the child. That would be emotional. I'm going to chase you down and beat you is emotional punishment or abuse. Okay? A child that goes off the path will meet with its own well-communicated punishment. Do you guys understand the difference between that? Okay? 
right, I'll go off the notes here. We lost our Wi-Fi connection, so not sure what's going on there. Um, number four, punishment doesn't seek out the child. The child seeks out the punishment. That sounds weird, but if a child takes a path, it's eventually going to end up in punishment. Number five, there is no emotion in establishing punishments. It's the end result of a child's action. Again, a punishment has to be as cold and as dead as a stone wall, and we're going to get into that here in a minute. Number seven, teaching should sandwich the punishment. Do you understand why, why, why you are getting this punishment? Number eight, you shouldn't punish unless you disciple first. If you're not teaching them, you have no right to dole out a punishment. They need to know why they're getting punished. And number nine, anger is a tool that can be used for both good and bad. Next page, the Incredible Hulk versus the Stone Wall. You guys have the Incredible Hulk on your page? Has anybody ever seen that guy in the mirror? Have guys ever been so mad at your kids that you think the Incredible Hulk is coming out in you? I sure have. Um, I'm going to go, I don't know. Let's put that one. Let's see. Are we... All right. No. no that's the Around 30 or so. Something incredible Hulk versus the stone wall. Um, sorry about this technical stuff, guys. We'll get through this here in a little bit. When you base your punishment on emotions, it's like the Incredible Hulk. Remember how he got mad and lost all control and he tore something up and then he felt really bad about it? Was there any teaching or any discipline in that? No, it was just destruction. And that's what happens to our kids when we are out of control or in anger when we're discipling. All right, let's back it up. Try that one. There he is. Hello, fella. All right. The proper way of building a house of discipline is similar to building a stone wall. Discipline is like a structure or boundary that has a purpose for protecting or guiding our children. Do you need to build a stone wall? You need a vision or a plan. You also need stones, mortar, and finally a gate. Now let's use our imagination and build this stone wall. All right, number one, the vision, the plan. First, you need to decide on a parameter. What are your rules? Your rules may be different than mine, and that's fine. But you need to have a vision, a blueprint, a posted rules. This is what we do in our family, like there is no lying. All right? Um, How big or small you want the wall? What it is that you want to accomplish in the long run with these rules you come up with? The vision should be thoroughly thought out with you and your wife or, or maybe another family member on where you're going with these rules. If a rule is stupid, like you can't drink milk on Tuesday, you need to know why. Why can't I drink milk on Tuesday? Well, because, you know what I'm saying? You need to think out these rules because 
It's like a compass for your kids. This is where we're headed. This is the plan, the vision. Next, the stones or the rules. Carefully consider and decide what rules or stones you want. Throwing out the stones that would not be a good fit for your family. The rules should be as solid and emotionless as stone. This is where uh, you, the emotionless comes in to our punishment. All right, The child should be able to live in freedom and security inside the walls of this stone wall. Next is mortar, or a teaching moment. Using mortar places your stones on top of each other and builds your strong stone wall. Mortar represents the teachings that happen before and after the punishment. It solidifies the rules. This is why you are being punished. Very important. There should be a teaching of why they are being punished every time they get punished so they know what happened, not just I got punished or TV got taken away from me or something because mom or dad was mad. Make sure the child verbalizes why they're being punished. Yes, I lied. That's why I'm being punished. And then the gate, so important. The gate is restoration. If someone has made a mistake, they need to have an opportunity or a way to come back in. Build a strong gate that can withstand trespassers, but that is flexible enough to allow the kids or the disciples or someone in your life back in. If someone has hurt you or broken your rules, you need to open a door and let them know restoration is available if you want to come back. Very important. This is why uh, emotions of restoration, this is where emotions of restoration can flow. Like, we love you forever. Always, no matter what. Amen? Amen. Lastly, Running short on time here, we're going to be talking about it's not about money. As we were writing our book, Jessica was still in town getting ready for going to Bethel. Um, she had already sold the car she had, and she was driving Jonathan's truck. Remember the white truck he used to have? Emphasis on used to. We had just finished up Sunday morning prayer there at 9.30. We're getting ready to come in here. You guys remember it? All right. Got the phone call. She is freaking out on the phone. Can't hardly understand her, but I got through. I was in an accident, and I wrecked Jonathan's car. As a parent, is there anything more terrifying? You're not there. Something bad happened. They're hurt, and you don't want to hurt yourself trying to get there. Claire and I got there, and we saw Jonathan's truck wrapped around a tree and our neighbor's truck demolished. Jessica was unharmed in her body, but she was wrecked in her soul and her spirit. She went around a corner with her eye on the radio and her foot on the gas. All right, do you remember the parking lot? All right, we had taught, we had discipled her, we had informed her that you need to keep your eye on the road and not the radio. She had gone to our stone wall, she knew the difference, and she jumped over that stone wall, and what was waiting for her on the other side of the wall? A tree. 
as emotionless and cold, if you will, as lifeless punishment is like a tree. If you step over the boundaries, you're going to run into the tree. That's punishment. Now, she had to go get another job. She had to work to not only pay off Jonathan's truck, but pay for the truck that she totaled and save money for Bethel. It was emotionless. We didn't have to ground her or spank her or anything. The tree did the work for us. And the knowledge that if you wreck our car, you have to replace it. It was an emotionless decision filled with emotion because she hit the tree and she felt that pain. Now, is she going to keep her eye on the road a little bit more now? Absolutely, because she jumped the fence and ran into her own punishment. You understand the concept here. Make sure your punishments are very clearly defined. This is what will happen if you do this and keep the incredible Hulk out of your life. If you're angry, it's your problem. You go settle down. You choose your attitude and then come back and let the punishment, as emotionless as this tree, do its work. Next slide. All right. The glory or the attention does not belong to the tool, the tree, but to the builder. Got to back up just a little bit here. Um, As we have said in the book and many times up here, we try, we attempt to stay in the spirit at all times. When something traumatic happens like that, it kind of jolts us to be thrown into an emotional state. And it takes great effort to come back into the spirit. And as we were doing this, I, I quieted myself. I went to the Lord and I said, Lord, what do we do? Because we didn't have the money for this. And I heard the Lord very clearly said, it's not about the money. And my argument was to the Lord, it sure seems like it's about the money because we don't have it. We don't have it for another car, and we don't have it for our neighbor's car. He said, it's not about the money. The money is a tool. As I mentioned on these words, I was watching the, um, the school up here on Shiloh and Arapaho being built. All right? carpenters and roofers all over the place. And as I was meditating on his words, right, I was, I was watching in amazement on, on how these guys worked in concert. There must have been a hundred guys out there doing their job. And I was amazed about how quickly and how beautifully this, this building came up. My appreciation of the work was focused on the carpenters, on the supervisors, on the architects of the project. But I gave no glory to the hammers or the saws or the paintbrushes. Then the revelation came. The glory or the attention does not belong to the tool, the money, but to the builder, the Lord. The Lord was building something in my daughter, and he was using the tool of money to do it. I was freaked out about the tool and not looking at the builder. We're not to worship or worry. Let me say that again. We're not to worship or worry 
about the tool God uses or freaking out about money or some other kind of situation, our focus and our, and our emotion is on the tool and not what the Lord is doing. It is His way of working, His perfect will in us. And God did not cause this accident to happen, nor was it His perfect will to have His accident. But He can build something out of a wrecked car. Amen? Next slide. He can turn a bad thing into an opportunity to develop our character. But bad things happen, a lot of bad ha- things happen to all of us, guys. Let it be used by the Lord. Don't run from it. Say, Lord, what do you want to build through this in me? It may be a difficult choice to not just jump in and try to fix the problem for your child when they make a mistake. Let that tool do the character building in your kid. And let the master builder finish his work. All right, the last part here is letting the disciple go or launching versus leaving. It is 10 minutes after 8. We don't have time, but this is critical to getting your kids, discipling your kids for a purpose of launching them out, not keeping them around. All right? We have, we have put all of our notes in here for you guys to read this through. Um, see, can you, can you go to the next slide there? You guys, uh, one more. All right, two pictures. See the little kid on the rocket being launched with a parent on the ground? It's tough being that parent on the ground because that kid is out on a rocket, and you hope that they, you taught them everything you can to hold on that rocket. You want to chase down that rocket and say, come here, i got something else to fix. Boy, we're living that now. But what you don't want, guys, is the, the other picture. It's where they leave mad because you let the Incredible Hulk guide your punishment. You did not put down the proper discipling teaching tools where they know what to do with their life. I'm going to let you guys look through this. It has to do with the archer. It has to do with preparing your arrows. But we're going to let you read that at home. Like I said, we have all the questions, the art of discipleship or discipline questions in the back and the art of discipline parenting proverbs in the back too. We always close with the forgiveness time. So if you guys would, just bow your heads, close your eyes, and Claire's going to close us in prayer. Lord, thank you so much that you have given us this insight that even though we are not perfect parents, that we can always get better and we can lean on you. Thank you, Lord, for letting us all grow into the disciplers that you want us to be. And I ask if there is anybody here that has unforgiveness in their heart, maybe for a parent who did not disciple correctly, if you grew up with an incredible Hulk punisher, that we could choose to forgive them 
and let that go so that we can move on. And Lord, if I've been that parent that has lost my temper, punished in anger, yelled at my kids over they didn't know what, I ask that you grace them through that, that they can forgive, and I forgive myself for those times. Today is a new day. It says your mercies are new every morning. We can go back. We can ask for forgiveness. Can't change the past, but we can start today with how you want us to have a relationship with our children or with the people around us that we are discipling or leading. Lord, we accept that forgiveness that you've offered. Thank you, Lord, that every day is a new day. We ask for your wisdom and your grace to parent or disciple as you would have us do it in your spirit and your love that we can build relationships and spread your kingdom through us and through those we touch. Amen. Amen. Next week is our last week here. We're going to be talking about rules versus relationships and Monday classes, correct? Thank you, guys. Bless you.